Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative of Perinatal Quality Care. I am Danielle Tate, a maternal fetal medicine specialist and the maternal medical director of TIPQC. Today's discussion is an exciting one, and it will focus on mental health as it relates to OB past as well as past traumatic events in a patient's life. Speaking of our guests, let me introduce Beth Shelton. Welcome to our show today. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for joining us. Just a quick introduction of Beth Shelton. She is a certified perinatal mental health specialist in Memphis, Tennessee. She is also a licensed clinical social worker, having received her Master of Social Work from the University of Tennessee. She has served as an adjunct faculty in the School of Social Work at the University of Memphis. She is the owner of Beth Shelton Counseling, a practice that provides mental health services in the greater Memphis area. It is so great to have you, Beth, here taking time out of your busy schedule to discuss with us today something that I feel is so important for the women of our community here in Memphis and actually abroad. Absolutely. No, trauma is a relevant conversation for anyone who is a person and probably animals too, but that's not an area of specialty. But I think they have studies that show that trauma impacts them too. Absolutely. Well, as we get started, can you share with us a little bit about yourself and your journey to this perinatal mental health care that you've been doing for the past several years? Sure. I have uh, I got my graduate degree in 2006 here in Memphis. And shortly after that happened, my um, now ex-husband and I moved up to Morgantown, West Virginia, where his job transferred us. While we were there and shortly after we got married, a year or so after we got married, I got pregnant with my first child, my daughter. And during that pregnancy, I had a relatively uneventful pregnancy, uh, some super fun sciatic pain, which I don't recommend. But what I did have during that pregnancy was what I, a woman who I call my baby guru. Her name was Jeannie, and she was an educator, a childbirth educator, and a breastfeeding educator, and a newborn educator at the hospital where I delivered in West Virginia. So I had Jeannie who was so supportive and knowledgeable and kind and gave us her cell phone number if we needed to reach her after birth. And the other thing that I had was a certified nurse midwife. So uh, don't take this personally, but I've actually had two children and I've never worked with an OB. And I, I feel like that's relevant for me to talk about, especially as it relates to trauma, because part of the reason I think professionally I can do the work with birth trauma is that I don't myself have any birth trauma. I actually had sort of the like quintessential rainbow unicorn birth both times. And uh, I don't talk about them a lot because I don't want to make other people feel bad and trigger them and, you know, point out all of the reasons that their birth didn't go the way they wanted to go. But mine did. And a lot of that I credit to the very personal care that I got from women who were giving me education and building my trust. 
and who allowed me to learn to trust my body. But also I was fortunate to be privileged and resourced and have the access to that information and things went really well. So that was the beginning part of my journey was just my journey to becoming a, a mother and having that support postpartum as well. I was fig- you know, figuring out breastfeeding and fumbling through that whole situation and learning the developmental stages of my child who is was precarious in utero and precarious out of utero and remains precarious. Uh, she's very consistent. When we moved back down to Memphis, we had another baby a couple of years later, and he was actually born at home. So I had more midwifery care and more support and more trust and more communication. And throughout there became, I got my training as a postpartum doula. I was at a bit of a crossroads professionally. I'd been doing some clinical work with a couple of agencies here, teaching adjunct. And actually, my ex-husband was the one that said, hey, you're really great at taking care of moms, and you've got a master's degree. Why don't you figure out how to blend those two things together? So I kind of did. This would have been 2013. Not a lot of information floating around. Not a lot of trainings anywhere. It was a sort of a vast wasteland, especially in the South, especially in Memphis. Some things haven't changed all that much in that regard. Uh, So I drove to Knoxville, and I did a three-day postpartum doula training with a woman from Oregon. Uh, So it was, you know, not a readily available thing. And then at the same time, in conjunction, took a semester-long course uh, through an organization called 2020 Mom on perinatal mental health and began my therapy practice working with one of a series of agencies that I went to after that and have been working with families uh, in the perinatal time of their life, which does include pregnancy worked through loss at every stage of pregnancy, including infant loss. I've worked with infertility, some of that worked, some of that didn't work. I've worked with adoptive families, surrogate families, worked with birth trauma uh, throughout the entire experience. And then just, you know, your everyday run of the mill postpartum anxiety and OCD. I've seen kind of a lot. I haven't seen all of it. I don't think either of us have, but I've seen a lot of it. And I, you know, feel comfortable with working and speaking about some pretty hard stuff. So that's kind of my kind of my journey to get me where we are. Your journey is definitely inspiring. And I definitely think it is inspiring for those who may not have a medical background, but feel a pull to women's health services. Right. So thank you for sharing that journey with us. We have mentioned both you and I yeah. now since we've started talking about this term obstetric or OB trauma. And I'll tell you, those in my world think of something like a car accident or some physical trauma to the body. But in the mental health world, it holds its own special definition. Can you speak to that more for us? Trauma in general, and this is where I think it gets sticky when we're talking about birth trauma. Trauma is subjective. So what I might experience as trauma in the delivery room, you might not experience as trauma in the delivery room. And it's that part of it that I think makes a trauma-informed medical population so important because it is subjective. And we don't know what trauma is going to look like across the board from some things I think we can state pretty clearly, you know, emergency cesarean, rush to the OR, knocked under July anesthesia, go on, go off. Yes, that probably across the terms, everyone would agree that that was traumatic. But a birth does not have to be that extreme to be traumatic. I've worked with clients who have had unmedicated vaginal births at home that needed work with birth trauma. So it's not what we think of 
trauma and what we might accept as trauma, I'm doing a lot of air quotes, y'all, doesn't doesn't really matter what we think about it. It's what the family thinks about it and what the birthing person thinks about it. It does. And if I'm understanding correctly, you can have a birth trauma in the setting of an optimal or a quote unquote good outcome. Absolutely. Yes. Because I think what you look at as a good outcome as a medical professional is that mom is alive, baby is alive, everybody's healthy and growing, right? And that is, uh, that's, that's one entire category that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not that birth was traumatic. So no, they're not, they aren't related. Can you cite some other examples? I know you mentioned unmedicated birth. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, I definitely worked a home birth where she had a cervical lip and she spent a whole lot of time with her midwife's hand inside of her vagina, which is, you know, pretty traumatic for her. She lost a lot of blood after that happened. She was fine. The baby was fine. Baby took right to the breast. Everything went well. On paper, it looked like a great birth. But as an individual experience, when she was kind of trapped in an incredibly vulnerable position, laboring. But, you know, if you consider that one in four women have an experience with sexual molestation or assault throughout her lifetime, and that all of the incidences are kind of happening in the same area of the body, you know, one in four women just on that line alone is at risk of experiencing birth trauma, which is completely subjective and might have an absolutely glorious outcome. And it could be that what she experienced was being re-traumatized by cervical checks that she didn't consent to. And how are we treating each individual in the labor and delivery room or the process of leading up to the labor and delivery room? There's a whole lot of points of contact between a woman's vagina and a medical provider before she gives birth that are relevant when we're talking about trauma-informed care and an awareness of sexual assault on that. Another incident might be, I mean, I think, you know, cesareans are a predictor of of traumatic birth. They're not a guarantee. Women have lovely cesarean births all the time. Sometimes a planned scheduled C-section can be the most beautiful redemptive birth experience that a woman can have. I'm absolutely not anti-cesarean. And oftentimes they are very much responded or, you know, related to the conversations and the level of trust with the medical provider. And what is being communicated to her? And what is she consenting to? And how much information is she getting about what's getting ready to happen to her? And is she okay with that? Which sounds like a lot of work on the part of the medical provider and sometimes can be, right? But it's extensive work if there's no training or awareness of it. It's actually pretty simple, can be, if they know what it is that they could be doing. I'm not going to say supposed to be doing, but could be doing. It did. And... It sounds as if this may be, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. this could be potentially a form of PTSD in the future. Absolutely. So, you know, running just a couple of general numbers, and I apologize that I don't have the exact right, most up-to-date evidence. So I'm just going to kind of generalize and feel comfortable in that space. Between 40 and 50% of birthing persons review their birth, look back on their birth with words that they would describe as traumatic. Yes, my birth was traumatic to me. It's necessary to recognize that while there are diagnostic criteria, according to the DSM, to diagnose someone with PTSD, you can still have those symptoms without meeting the diagnosis for PTSD, right? And that's kind of across the board with everything. You can have symptoms of diabetes without meeting the diagnostic criteria, right? Those things can still happen. Between, I believe the most updated numbers are 10 to 15% of birthing persons do reflect on their births with symptoms of and meet the pathological requirements for PTSD. That is just with birth alone. 
that does not incorporate any experiences in the NICU. The numbers go way high up with that one. So, yes, there can be some PTSD that happens. It's not uncommon. Between 10 and 15% of, of parents experience it. Birthing partners can experience it as well because they're watching all of it happen. You know, overall picture, if we are beginning the journey of parenthood from a place of trauma, are we setting that family and that community up for success? I think not. Very true. So shifting gears a little bit, because you've given us a lot of great information in order to better understand this subject area, but how can we as healthcare providers better interact with patients in the evaluation process just to see if this potentially is something that the patient is at risk for having happened to them or has had happened to them? Right. I mean, I think that there's some real generalized questions that we can ask. And I've said this in lectures in the past to medical professionals, you know, in our intake paperwork or when we're meeting a new patient for the first time, are we asking, do you have a history of sexual assault? Right. It's a yes or no question. It takes about a second and a half to inquire about. You don't need to know the details. And she didn't have to tell you a single word beyond that. Yes or no. Great. Yes, you recognize that like there's absolutely going to need to be some real awareness to how we are talking to her about her body. But here's a fun idea. Why don't we just assume that everybody gets to have consent over what happens to their bodies, whether or not they have a history of sexual assault or not, right? Why don't we just make it a habit to say, this is what I need to do. This is what's going to happen. This is what it might feel like. Is this okay with you? Right? Why don't we just give her that information so that she can have some consent and some agency and some autonomy? Doing that early in the process, early in the prenatal visit or prior to, right? Setting a woman up for success when she's a young woman coming in for her first gynecological visit where her caretaker says, you know what? The standard for you should always be that your provider ask you for consent. If they don't, get a different provider. Then I think as the generations below us move more into positions that incorporate that, it'll, it'll become a little bit more commonplace to happen. Um, but we're not there right now. And so that's what matters. You know, I think always asking consent is should be sacred. Another thing that's really important to understand about risk factors and predictive factors for trauma is that it's not always behaviors that present. Socioeconomic class is a big deal. Race is a big deal. Women that are black and brown and BIPOC population are 20% more likely to develop symptoms of anxiety and trauma than white women are. So if we're working with a brown or black human being who is in a lower socioeconomic class, she's at risk for some trauma to happen, period. It doesn't matter what what behavior she presents with. If she has a family history of mood disorder, which is absolutely a question we can capture in screening, right? Have you ever had a family member that's been hospitalized? And those are pretty standard questions. Do you have a history of bipolar disorder? What medications are you taking? Have you had therapy before? The birthing person has the right right to understand what's going to happen to their body across the board, and to be treated with respect and humanity. Trust in provider is the biggest predictor of whether or not an outcome will be viewed in the subjective lens of trauma. Period. And I don't think that's something that we can capture on a screening, right? That's something that we have to take the responsibility for as providers to learn how to do or get better at. And suggest to our colleagues and talk to them about it. 
another way to build trust is to acknowledge that you screwed up, right? Accountability. We're humans. We're going to screw up. Nobody's going to knock this out of the park every every single time. It's just not going to happen that way. But going back and saying, I screwed up. Or this really scary thing happened to you that nobody had any opportunity to off to ask for consent for because we really did get down to the seconds of whether or not you were going to survive this or your baby was going to survive this. And let's talk about what you could do in the future or what we can do in the future as a team to prevent this from happening again. Right. And that going back and reprocessing that repair work is so necessary for healing trauma and also not one we can screen for. So the theme that I'm coming down to here is there's only so much that my doctor friends and my nurse friends are going to be able to capture through screening. A lot of this is going to have to happen from a personal place of being, being accountable to yourself and your the population you serve and getting more trauma informed and learning that like, ooh, we can't screen for everything. Can we say, are there screenings of past history of trauma? Absolutely. Yes. But a lot of that's already captured through your PHQ. Are you doing an Edinburgh? Yes, you're doing an Edinburgh. I hope you're doing an Edinburgh. Right. But there's studies coming out saying that parent, patients don't really love the Edinburgh. So what kind of trust are we building with our providers or with our with our patients and our clients? Because that's going to be a bigger predictor than anything. And the list of risk factors is really long. So true. And also, it sounds just as you're explaining how our role can be heightened in this. Also, just taking time over the course of the pregnancy. Yes. It seems more time that we just feel like it's a introduction to patient care conversation and then we're done and we move on with the pregnancy and then even doubling back after delivery just to make sure we completely understand the patient's experience absolutely and there's nothing we need to address other than how she is physically doing or how the baby's physically doing right and let me just address one thing from a symptomatic and pathological level about what what you just said and also, let me say, I completely agree with you, right? That prenatal care is and developing that relationship and developing that trust and communicating openly and being a safe place to ask questions and to have it come apart and to do all of the things that we expect might happen with a person going through pregnancy. One of the symptoms that is incredibly relevant to discuss when it comes to postpartum care is avoidance. And by that, I mean, one of the symptoms, one of the diagnostic symptoms of PTSD, right? When we are traumatized by something, the likelihood is that we are going to avoid anything that reminds us of it, anything that puts us at risk of it happening again. We live in an urban area. If a woman has a really crap time with a provider or at a hospital, she's got options and she might not have to, they might not have to return to that space again. However, that can also be problematic, even in an urban environment, because they might never get their questions answered. They might never get the opportunity for that repair work. Because if they're not coming back in for their postpartum checkups, when is that going to happen? We can't force them to. And more women are likely to go visit their pediatrician than they are their six-week checkup or their three-week checkup or whatever checkups are scheduled. Meaning to say, if something went real screwy and haywire and got real scary and got real dicey there for a little bit, maybe... Check on that person while they're still in the hospital because you might not ever see them again. And if you're wanting to do the repair work and the repair work needs to be done, do it while it's still really acute and fresh and everyone is really clear. Reestablish that trust because if you never see that patient again, there's no opportunity for repair work and those cycles go on and on and on. So recognizing that avoidance which can also be very relevant to prenatal care. And it can be overwhelmingly relevant 
to behaviors of parents in the NICU? Avoidance is definitely something I see on a regular basis. I think at times we as healthcare providers become frustrated because maybe we are the fifth or sixth hospital the patient's been to or practice is different every pregnancy or just not wanting to come into the hospital when something is going on with their body, with their pregnancy. And it can become frustrating. And sometimes we tend to then wall in the patient into this certain scenario in our heads instead of diving deeper into why that behavior is present in the first place. Mm -hmm. I think we have a tendency to label patients as noncompliant when they don't follow the rules that we lay out to them. And from a mental health, you know, mental health perspective and someone who's been a social worker in the city of Memphis off and on since 2006, noncompliance is usually avoidance that's attributed with PTSD, right? And that's a systemic issue that is going to take a long time to root out, but call it what it is, right? They're not, it's maybe not, maybe it's not that they're noncompliant, right? There's a host of reasons why someone might not come into a prenatal visit, transportation issues, poverty, work, all of the things that we don't have conversations about as much as we should, especially in cities like the one that we both live in and love. But noncompliance might be avoidance, right? And do you know that about that person? You might if you developed a relationship and they trust you, right? If you ask them, they'll tell you, but they've got to trust you first. And being able to do that repair, gosh, what a what an amazing position to be in as a medical provider for someone who's working with pregnant women, right? Like, or pregnant persons, what a great way to do repair work for the medical community as a whole, right? There are, and you see them so often that there's so many opportunities for, and that, you know, it goes all the way down to front desk staff. How are we talking to people when we answer the phone? What is the person like in the ultrasound room? Are we having trainings and opportunities and conversations in our offices that allow all of us to get uncomfortable, right? Oh, and here's a really great way for me to segue into one of my favorite conversations about becoming more trauma-informed is, are we doing the work ourselves? Are we healing our own traumas? Are we seeing our own therapist and having our own conversations about stuff? Might not be. Maybe we should. Because it's very difficult to develop trust and, you know, get someone else to develop trust in us if we don't trust ourselves. With compassion and with empathy and with the deepest respect, we're all traumatized right now. And we all need that mental health support so that we can keep doing the work that we love to do. We're burned out, y'all. Like all of us, I'll throw myself in that category. We've got to heal so that we can help each other heal so that we can help each other heal, right? This is a very community-based empathy and compassion exercise. And what a great time to do it. We're all starting from scratch, right? We got to do the work. We got to do the work. All of us have to do the work. And then we can make, we can make our cities and our medical offices better places. So no truer words. And everything you've described over these last several minutes does sound a bit overwhelming, just speaking from a healthcare provider standpoint. But I do understand that this type of care takes a team. So it's not just individualized. How do you best see the role of us as OB healthcare providers helping as a team with therapists and other mental health professionals like yourself? And then vice versa. How do you see the mental health professional playing key roles in the OB team care? Sure. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could all work together, right? And we were on staff with each other and we were 
sharing experiences and offering support to the different things. You know, I've, I've always kind of maintained the principle that it would be lovely if every OB office had at least one mental health specialist on ta- on, on staff. And if hospitals had designated social workers that were there just for the purposes of serving the, the perinatal units. Um, and I am using plural here on pos- you know, on, on purpose, I think bringing us on to, I think bringing trained quality mental health professionals onto any medical team is important, right? Having, you know, lunch and learns where people are coming in and talking about producing trauma-informed care to hospital staffs and OBs are, you know, have the real option. The doctors in charge, right? Are the doctors in charge? They have a real opportunity to create a culture of consent, a culture of trauma-informed care. You just don't get any training about that. If you wanted to find one place that is simple to make a daily change tomorrow, maybe you just start really focusing on asking for consent. Maybe you start really focusing on saying, are we asking our patients about sexual history? Are we question, you know, maybe you start asking one question that you never would have asked before when you're reviewing a chart. She's missed her last three prenatal visits, right? My assumption might be, oh, it's because, you know, she's a, she's a slacker patient and she doesn't care about the well-being of her baby. Or maybe that's not true. Maybe I can ask her about that, right? Incremental, you know, arduous, long, slow changes have to happen in increments, You've got to go step by step by step, right? Looking at it through or speaking at it to the, through the lens of social work, we goal set with one big goal and then we break it down into smaller, more manageable, more attainable, more measurable goals so that our clients don't feel overwhelmed. And in this capacity of, you know, interviewing for a podcast, I'm not going to be able to do that. But there are lots of professionals available worldwide that would be more than happy to help people along that journey. How can you look at that? overarching goal. I want to be more trauma informed. I want to better understand my patients. I want to better communicate. I want my patients to trust me. I want my friends to trust me, whatever, and break that down into small incremental goals that can systemically make a very huge difference. Do you see a role in this coming from our neonatology and pediatric colleagues? Sure. Neonatology especially benefits from a trauma-informed care. A neonatologist and NICU nurses and NICU staff across the board and anyone that's working with families in the neonatal unit, like the impact of trauma on that particular population far encroaches upon all of the other trauma that we're talking about. And NICU is such a unique and interesting and crisis-filled experience, both physically and emotionally. When it comes to pediatric care, I think trauma-informed across the board matters there, too. How are we talking to parents? How are we referring to them? From a pediatric place, it's trauma-informed care is as important and as relevant and also provides a great opportunity for children going through their developmental stages to understand that, like, I should be okay to expect that my doctors build trust with me. That's an important precedent for me to have and something to get used to, right? We shouldn't leave our pediatrician's office and then never step foot in another doctor's office where there's not compassion provided. So I I think just smoothing that surface out and bringing more trauma-informed conversations to every staff table, regardless of practice, is it's critical. Great. Lastly, can you speak to any resources in the state, region, nationally, that providers and patients alike could lean to if they're in a situation of birth trauma? 
postpartum support international is going to always be a go-to for any kind of mental health perinatal support. Um, they've got an abundance of support groups, trainings. They've got a, a warm line for parents. They've got professional support and development. That's a great place to start. When it comes to birth trauma specifically, the options are a little bit more limited than they, they need to be. I think that's a, it's a growing area of concern and focus. And I suspect in the next five or 10 years, we're going to see some more readily available information about that. There's some great books written by some amazing authors on NICU care. Mara Tesler-Sign is a wonderful, she's got a book called Intensive Parenting, which is a uh, shout out tomorrow, which is a fantastic resource to understand the life of the NICU journey. Karen Kleiman is a wonderful author who has a just abundance of books written on perinatal mental health in general learning and reading, take a training if it comes to you, PSI, which is Postpartum Support International, they have, you know, hour long free webinars for medical providers, which I highly recommend just, you know, go and watch it on your lunch break and all your free time, all your free time, right? Focus it on this effort as well. Utilize Postpartum Support International. They're a really great resource across the board. Well, thank you for what you do for the birthing persons here in Memphis and across the state of Tennessee. And I would like to thank everyone for joining the podcast with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.